Good morning. Today's uh, scripture comes from Acts 2, verses 41 through 47. Uh, feel free to follow along on the screen. This is the word of God. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Amen. Thank you, Peter. Good morning, New Mercy. My name is Bob. I'm one of the pastors here. I'll be delivering today's message. Uh, as Tina mentioned, we're continuing our series on the book of Acts. Uh, we're, we're titling this series Empowering Encounters. And we're looking at the early church. Uh, we're seeking to gain lessons from how they lived and flourished. So last week, Pastor Key kicked off the series from Acts chapter 2, the first part of Acts chapter 2, uh, when the Holy Spirit came upon the believers at Pentecost. And it's from this point that the church just massively grows in number and in spirit. And we see that in our first verse today. If we look at verse 41 again, it says that 3,000 people became baptized in one day. I don't know how they pull that off. That's, that's a lot of water. Uh, but from there, uh, the church just continues to grow and grow. Uh, we see in verse 43, everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. And if you read through the book of Acts, you see a lot of miracles performed by the apostles. A couple examples. Right after our passage today, in chapter 3, uh, Peter heals this lame beggar. It was a guy who always begged in front of the temple gate. So everyone knew who he was. So when Peter says, get up and walk, and, and he, he's healed, uh, everyone would see that because everyone would know who he was, and they would be amazed that this uh, formerly lame man was now walking. Uh, later on, the apostles get put in jail. The religious authorities are jealous, so they place Peter in jail, and they miraculously escape. And people are like, look, there's the people who are in jail, and now they're teaching in the temple courts. So this was another sign, another miracle that people saw. So there were all these miracles, right, displays of God's power that were taking place through the book of Acts. People were healed. God's people escaped jail. People were speaking in tongues. And, and that's amazing. And, and like Tina said, you know, at New Mercy, we believe that God still does these things today. Uh, we pray for miracles. We pray for God to do things that only he can do. Uh, we pray for signs. Signs meaning that people will see them and they will see the God behind them. That through miracles, God doing the supernatural, like we saw in verse 41, people will get baptized. People will come to know Jesus. And that's a great way to pray for our church. Lord, show us your power. Lord, show us your signs and wonders that people may come to faith in you. That people will come to see that you exist, that you are real. However, I would like to submit to you today my working thesis, which is, the greatest sign of the early church is not the healings. It's not escaping jail. It's not even raising people from the dead. 
I believe the greatest sign is right here in our main passage today. I want to look again at verses 44 to 47. It says, All believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet in the, together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Do you see it? Do you see the sign? How many of you are part of a company? How many of you are part of a kind of team, a kind of group? How many of you are part of a church? What's the default setting of such a group? Is it all of them were together and had everything in common? Is it everyone sacrificing and giving to people in need? Is it everyone being glad and sincere? Not usually. Uh, I recently finished uh, Tim Keller's book. It's titled Making Sense of God. It's written as an invitation to any skeptical person about the merits of Christianity. Uh, I highly recommend it. If any of you here are you know, skeptical, you're seeking, you're not so sure about Jesus, I would really uh, recommend that book to you. Uh, but I'm going to spoil the last illustration. So Keller tells us this man named Langdon Gilkey. Langdon Gilkey uh, graduated from Harvard, magna cum laude in philosophy. After graduating, he taught English at a university in China in 1940. Uh, but then shortly after the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor, the Japanese overran the region, and they put under house arrest uh, any Western nationals, so mainly Americans and British people. Uh, they, they just you know, shoved all of them into this prison camp in Shandong province. So picture this compound. Uh, there's barbed wire everywhere, guard towers, uh, machine gun armed guards. Uh, the, the compound itself was about the size of a large city block, so not very big at all. And they squeezed 2,000 people into this compound. Gilkey's living space was nine feet by four and a half feet. Uh, not, not very big, right? Not very spacious. Uh, food was scarce. Uh, there were about 20 toilets, and none of them flushed. Uh, guns were trained on you at all times. And when Gilkey entered this camp, he was a confident humanist. He believed that human beings were good and rational. And religion, it was, that was just a matter of personal taste, but generally useless. Gilkey was kind of ahead of his time. He was an avowed secularist. He believed that morality can thrive without religion. Right, we have this new school right, of secularism today, right, people who believe the same thing. And at the beginning of his time at this prison camp, Gilkey was encouraged. He was like, okay, I'm going to see these 2,000 men right, and see how they interact, see how they work out their issues. And in the beginning, they did. They worked together. They tackled challenges. They, they solved problems regarding food, sanitation. Uh, even actors and musicians uh, you know, among the prisoners, they would use their gifts and serve people and, and perform for them. So at first, it was going well. It was humanity at its finest, coming together, solving problems. But then reality, people began stealing food. People began fighting over space and goods. And Gilkey realized, something we've probably all realized as we've gotten older, that people are selfish. Right? People generally act out of self-interest. Uh, one particular moment stood out for Gilkey. He was the head of the housing committee at the camp. And he discovered that there were 11, small, 11 men you know, living in this small room. And there was this other small room with nine men, right? Identical space. So Gilkey was like, oh, that's perfect, right? There's an easy solution here. 
He approached the nine people, right? He's like, this is going to be easy, right? And just be like, hey, guys, here's the situation, right? Eleven, nine, right? If you take one more person, we're evened out, very rational. Who would not agree with such a fair-minded proposition? What do you think happened? The nine men said, if you put that guy here, we're throwing him out, right? If you, if you keep sending here, we're going to get tired. We're going to throw him out. We're going to throw you out, right? We're not sharing. We're not caring. And this kind of stuff right, happened nonstop for two years. And Gilkey realized this is the true nature of man. When you strip away the veneer, the mask of politeness, this is what you get. So Gilkey, he saw the selfishness of the human heart. He found that appealing to their morality, their, their rationality, uh, does not work. That there has to be something else at work to break off this default setting where people are just looking out for their self-interest. I'm going to come back later to Gilkey's story. But again, this is the miracle. This is the sign. When we look at our passage today, remember from last week that all the Jews from around the world were gathered together in Jerusalem. It was the festival of Pentecost, this Old Testament festival that they would celebrate. So all, you know, many of them, 3,000 we see from verse 41, get baptized, and they decide to stick around. They cancel their plane tickets. They join this brand new Christian community. So they're all Jews uh, becoming Christians. But remember, different languages, different cultures, different practices. And they're doing all of this on the fly. It's not, there wasn't anywhere near enough rooms for all these people. Okay, this may have been the first Airbnb service. Right, all these new people needing a place of extended stay. So all these Christians who live in Jerusalem, they're now opening up their homes left and right. They're not spacious homes. Right? They didn't have guest bedrooms. So people are already cramped for space, and now you've got all these new people, new strangers. And now you're even more cramped for space. They've got the, the host. They've got to feed. They've got to provide maybe even money for these strangers, people they just met. We're seeing the potential for discord, the potential for great conflict, uh, not unlike what happened in that prison camp. And yet, what does the Bible say? It says they were together. They had everything in common. What that means is they were one in heart. They were like-hearted. They met every day. Okay, people did not get me time. Okay, they were breaking bread together. They were always glad. The word that we see, sincere, it means open-hearted, uh, no pretense, uh, no masks, no faking, just genuine concern and interest in each other's lives. So if you want a real sign that points to the reality of Jesus Christ, the reality of the power and love of God, look no further than this community. They were unified. They were sacrificial. They were always together. Let's think about the possible pitfalls, the possible sins that could derail such a community. Imagine if you're one of the members of this early church and you've got all these new people you've never met and you're getting to know them. You're seeing them 24-7 all the time. It's like an introvert's worst nightmare. And uh, I came up with a list of possible pitfalls. Okay, here we go. Uh, awkwardness. Right? How much awkwardness was there in this new community? Right? How did all those people overcome that obstacle? Right? I, we barely overcome that obstacle on our own, right? 
Uh, fear of man, insecurity, selfishness, pride, false humility. I'm sure there were some inappropriate comments, insensitive remarks. Was everyone perfect with social graces? Probably not. Pesky extroverts, right, dominating the conversation. More awkward comments. Inside jokes, clicks, people feeling left out. Remember, it was the Jerusalem living Jews, right? They were the insiders. They were the hosts. They were the ones who already lived there. And now there's all these outsiders coming from all over the world, from different places. So we're seeing more and more how this passage that we're looking at today is an utter miracle. The second century Christian author, Tertullian, he tells of how the Roman government, they became very suspicious. We see this in the book of Acts. They became very suspicious of the early church. Why is it growing so fast for all these people? You know, there's this community. Uh, so they would send spies to infiltrate the community. And the spies would just report back to the empire. They would be like, these Christians, the way they love each other, the way they have fellowship. Uh, that word fellowship, it means, you know, genuine community, true partnership. This, like, blew their minds. They couldn't, they couldn't wrap their heads around it. It was this crazy phenomenon. So we're really not surprised any longer when we look at verse 47. Verse 47, that as they were praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people, it says the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Who, who would not want to be part of such a group? Right? Who would not want to be included in such a community? I read a story of a young man named Alec. Alec showed up at church because his Christian friend John invited him. And at the time, Alec was somewhere between an agnostic and an atheist. But he just came to church with his friend. He wore a black Slayer t-shirt uh, with his guard up to this church. And even before church started, people got to know him. This grandma Nancy surprised him with a hug. And Alec would just listen throughout the service, how people prayed, how people sang. And afterwards, Alex said to his friend John, he said, I thought all Christians were arrogant blankety-blanks, but I've never met people like these before. Then he asked John, do you come here every week? And when John said he did, Alec asked, can I come with you again? And a couple weeks later, Alec said, I want to convert. Right? I want to become a Christian. Uh, lesson number one from that story is do not underestimate our fellowship time. Right? Don't underestimate the time before service when you meet people, when you greet people. Uh, don't estimate the time when you meet people during service. I know some of you, you don't like that time, right? Like when Young said, right? Like, let's get up and get to know each other. Some of you are like, eh, right? But, um, but I want to challenge you, you know, what is the heart behind it? You know, could it be selfishness? Could it be, you know, your fear of awkwardness? Right? What are the things that hold us back? And, and of course, don't underestimate our fellowship time afterwards. You know, and I want to emphasize here, I like to use this illustration of being a party host. Uh, those of us who are members of this church, uh, if you're not a member of this church, you're visiting, you're a guest, we welcome you. You know, we're really glad you, you came to join us. Uh, please stick around, get to know us, get to know what we're about. Uh, but those of us who are members, we are called to be good party hosts every Sunday. And what is the main quality of a good party host? It's someone who looks around Make sure that everyone is attended to. Someone who, you know, makes sure that everyone is feeling welcomed and is feeling like they're part of the party. So when we come to church on Sundays, you know, we should be the ones on the lookout. 
We should be looking out for new guests, looking out and talking to new people, making sure that they feel included in this party that we call church. A good party host does not just talk to his or her close friends, doesn't just talk to people he or she feels comfortable with. They scour the room. They actually say to their close friends, would you excuse me for a moment, right, so I can go meet this new person. Or better yet, they'll take their close friend, right, and meet the new person together, right? And it's because we believe the unity that we can display in our church is a sign. This power of unity, this power of fellowship that people will see, and as a result, they will want to know the God behind the sign. When we think about inviting people to church, sometimes we get worried. We think, oh, it's kind of weird. You know, church service is kind of weird. You know, we sing for a while. We sing for a long time. Then this guy gets up and talks for a long time. Right? And that's wrong, right? Because we believe the Spirit is at work. But even in the illustration I gave, it was both. It, w- it was the worship and prayer time, the service, combined with the fellowship and the unity. So all those elements, they work together. And sometimes it can be one particular element, like the community, that is, that's the force that God uses to meet that new person. So we really ought to be inspired by this new church example, how people had the same heart. They, they went out, they loved each other, they made others feel welcome. They really did the hard work of community. I don't know how long it took for the early church to become what we see in our passage today, this togetherness, this sincerity, this generosity. Uh, But I know this, it took a lot of work. It took a lot of commitment. Have you ever noticed, you know, we talk about community, right? That's a word we use a lot at church. It's a a word we use for any group. Uh, And yet community is actually highly personal. It takes a lot of individual effort, a lot of individual commitment to be good members of a community. We know it's much easier to separate and do your own thing. It's much easier to stay in your inner circle and not go outside it. It's much easier to blame others instead of looking at our own hearts. And I believe how much more in this time and place that we live. Modern Western society is like the most individualistic society of all time. And I also would state that we are becoming the most divided society of all time. We're becoming a people that love to focus on our differences. Um, exhibit one is, is politics, right? Different political beliefs, um, different views on hot-button issues. More and more, there are people that are like, if you don't agree with me on this one issue, you're dead to me. I want nothing to do with you. We could agree on, like, everything else, on so many other things that we consider important. But if you disagree with me on this, we have no shared bond whatsoever. Those are the times in which we live. And this is why I believe the church can truly offer something today that is sorely in need. Because of this divided society we live in, more and more people do not actually have true community. More and more people are feeling lonely and detached. Uh, Church, this is really and truthfully our time. But of course, the question that naturally arises is, it's great that the early church, they achieved a sign of unity. But it seems really difficult. Like, how in the world? How did they do this? What was the magic formula? Our answer, of course, is in our passage. It's verse 42. Uh, Let's read it again. Verse 42 says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. 
Here's what we call the means of grace, the God-prescribed ways for you and I to grow in our relationship with God, to grow in our faith. So when this community gathered, they sat under the apostles' teaching. People who had been with Jesus are now teaching about Jesus, teaching the scriptures. And as we've been covering, they, they spent time in fellowship. Right? So after teaching, they got to know people. I, I know some of you may have legit reasons to you know, jet right after service. Um, otherwise, I would encourage you, right, stick around, um, get to know people. You know, there are so many ways to get plugged in in our church, join a family group. Uh, like Jay announced, we have different uh, events coming up. We encourage you to join us for our golf outing and our retreat. Uh, they broke bread together. This could refer to uh, like just eating meals together, uh, but also refers to communion, right, like we do at church every month. So they followed Jesus' words to practice communion, to meditate on Jesus' body broken for us, his blood shed for us. I was actually really greatly encouraged my, my first Sunday here a couple weeks ago uh, when I saw everyone's heart toward communion. I could tell that, you know, uh, you all saw it as like this holy moment. You know, and that's what communion should be, right? We're just savoring what Christ has done for us. And, and finally, they prayed. And as we can tell from context, this is not just individual prayer. This is not just silent prayer by yourself. This was taking time to pray together to truly share and carry each other's burdens. Uh, I'm going to ask you guys for accountability. Uh, I had a staff meeting with Pastor Bobe uh, last week. It was a Bob and Bobe show. That has a nice ring to it. The, the, the key Bob and Bobe show. That's not as catchy, right? He's on vacation. I can, it's my, it's my uh, obligatory dig at him. Um, but anyway, um, one ministry principle I, I seek to bring uh, and serve this church is, and I'm asking you to hold me to it, is no passivity in prayer. Uh, when there are opportunities to pray for people, do it. Uh, if someone's sharing something important, being vulnerable, uh, that's a great time to pray. If someone's sharing any kind of burden, it doesn't necessarily have to be personal even, that's a great time to pray. So openly looking for opportunities to pray, seizing that, those moments, um, that's one of my goals here. And I believe that's what the early church did, right? They were committed to prayer. They prayed for each other. They looked for excuses to pray. They prayed seeking the Lord. They didn't just talk about prayer. They actually prayed. That word in verse 41, uh, 42, it says it means uh, devoted. That word means persistent, uh, stubborn, a single-minded pursuit. So these people were all about these four things. Right? Here were the values of this early church. The apostles' teaching, fellowship, communion, and prayer. And the natural result is growth. Spiritual growth, people growing in faith, in hope, in love. 2,000 years later, the game has not changed. Those are the rules. Right? If you want to grow in your faith, these are the means of grace. They always have been, and they always will be. Uh, the great Saint Augustine he wrote about two cities, his landmark work, the city of God. And he wrote about how the city of man, we see it every day. We're exposed to it all the time. The city of man is visible, it's real, and therefore it becomes more alluring and tempting. Uh, the city of God, however, is invisible. It's cloaked. It's far away. Who knows if it even, even exists? The city of God may seem like a mirage. And that's precisely why we need these means of grace. 
Every time we read the Bible, every time we seek God in prayer, every time we gather and worship God, it's like the matrix, right? We see a new paradigm. We're reminded that the city of God is real. So we've got to be stubborn. We've got to be committed. Uh, You may not always feel like you're growing, but if we devote ourselves to these means of grace, we will grow. The city of God will take on bricks and mortar. We will see it getting built first in our individual lives, and then we'll see it more clearly in our church, in our community. There is no secret sauce. Uh, What does this early community learn anyway? They simply learned about Jesus, the life of Jesus. They learned about this man who walked the earth, who is also God. They learned about how he reached out to prostitutes and the sinners that nobody wanted to associate with. They learned about how he would throw down with the Pharisees and expose their love for power. They, they were taught how Jesus was falsely accused and yet remained silent, not out of weakness, but out of strength. I imagine the apostle Peter, right? He's like, yeah, man, I denied Jesus three times. I couldn't even stand up for Jesus when a slave girl accused me. I even cursed Jesus out in front of her. And then I saw him from afar, dying on that cross for my sins. And he was just saying, Father, forgive them. And then Jesus, when he rose from dead, he came up to me. And he gently restored me. He not only forgave me, he recommissioned me. So imagine hearing and learning about who Jesus is and what he's done. That stuff just changes you. Learning about Jesus changes you and your relationships. You learn how Jesus is both bold and humble. And that makes you bold and humble with others. If you're lacking in humility, you think about how Jesus is humble. If you're lacking in boldness, you think about how Jesus is bold. You learn how you are weak and sinful, and yet you're loved to the skies. That makes us less judgmental. That makes us more forgiving and more sincere. And this community would also learn of Jesus' final prayer. Let's look at John chapter 17, verses 20 to 21. His final prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus says to the Father, uh, verse 20, my, fa- my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus is praying for all believers in this prayer. So the early church now understands the directive, be one as God is one, so that the world may know and believe in God. But they're also receiving the fuel, the means, by thinking, by meditating, by enjoying, by savoring Jesus. I've shared before that I was a member of a prayer group. I left my job as a sports writer to join this prayer group in Colorado Springs. So when I got there, uh, there were about 50 of us. And I didn't know any of them. Besides the leaders, uh, I was the oldest person there. And I wasn't even that old, right, in my mid-20s. There were mostly white people from the Midwest and the South and the West. And they were very different from me. I had trouble connecting with them at first. And the first week I was there, I was miserable. I wanted to go home. I would call my friends back home and tell them I made a huge mistake. So I planned to leave early. I was plotting my early exit. You know, there was a church retreat, my home church, about six weeks from then. So I was like, okay, I'll try to stick it out. You know, it was like an eight-week thing, but I was like, I'll try to stick it out for like six weeks. But I'm leaving early. I'm going home. But then at the end of that first week, 
we all went on this trip. We hiked this nearby mountain. And our leaders had us sign this covenant where we basically said, you know, we're a body of Christ. We're brothers and sisters. Uh, we're going to get each other's back. Uh, your battles are my battles. And, and something shifted. Uh, it was the power of covenant, the power of membership. Um, from that point on, uh, I actually had the time of my life at that prayer group. I became very close with all these people, right, all these previous strangers. And listen, they were different. Honestly, they were, you know, a lot of them were, you know, not even skipping college. Um, they were ignorant. A few of them called me oriental, right? I might have been the first Asian person that they spent regular time with. Uh, but we bonded. Um, instead of focusing on our differences, we had one key similarity, our commitment to Jesus. And that is what made us like-hearted. Uh, that really meant, like our passage says, that we had everything in common. And I, what I remember from my nine months in that prayer group is more than, you know, un memorable prayer gatherings, you know, powerful, you know, works of God, uh, how we fasted together, all the traveling we did. What I really remember the most is a lot of these kids, you know, would just sit around and they would just read their Bibles. That's like what they did all the time. All right? And that's how it works. The two have to go together. And we see that clearly in our passage today. You know, many of us, we know, uh, some of you here today, you know, you should be more involved in our church community. Uh, we know that we can all stand to be more loving, more forgiving, uh, more understanding. We know that we should promote unity rather than just sitting around hoping it happens. Uh, like we want to fulfill our, our mission to be a church for the broken, uh, calling people to restoration. But it's like sometimes we forget the fuel. We forget verse 42, the key. It's being devoted. Right? It's being all in. You can't have the rest of this passage, all the togetherness, all the unity, right, without the fuel. And I think the, the order of verse 47 is also very telling. Uh, verse 47, it says they were praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. This is like a, a microcosm of our passage. It begins with knowing God, which leads to praising God, which then naturally leads to enjoying the favor of all the people. I want to put it to you a different way. The less we need people, the more we can love them. The less we need people, the more we can love them. When we think about the potential pitfalls of community, many of them occur because we actually are depending on each other for validation. We depend on each other for acceptance. We desire people's approval. When we feel insecure, we worry too much about how we look or how we sound. And that paralyzes us. It keeps us from being bold, from taking risks in vulnerability. When we feel left out, not part of an inner circle, and use that as a reason for not loving people, we lose our humility. Because again, we feel the need to be accepted before we can really dive into community. But if we stay devoted to the means of grace, and we learn more about Jesus, we discover he is the one, the only one, who can fill our hearts with his perfect love. Only that love can free us to truly go and love other people without needing their approval, without needing their acceptance. Because whatever we lack from people, we know that God can fill up what's lacking. At a previous church where I was a pastor, uh, I was single. Uh, the church was virtually all married people with small children. And, you know, I was active, right? I spent a lot of time at married people's homes 
eating their food, uh, watching football, enjoying fellowship. Uh, but then as I would drive home, I would feel lonely because I felt like I was the only person going home and like sleeping alone. And it's in those moments, right, even when I'm driving home, right, and I wasn't perfect, of course, but it was in those moments I had to remind myself of Jesus, remind myself of Jesus' perfect love for me. I had to pray. I had to read the Word of God. I had to stay devoted. And when I didn't, I would become more susceptible to becoming too dependent on people. I could easily fall into loneliness, which leads to isolation. And the net result was I would not love people well, right? Because I'd be too self-absorbed, too needy for people's company. But when we are secure in the love of God, when we come to know more and more how much God actually loves us, enjoys us, delights in us, is passionate for us, actually likes us, right? Then we are truly free to go and love other people. Then we're truly free and capable of building this community where people can say and look at us and say, wow, how they love each other, how glad they are, how together they are. I want to close with two examples. Um, the first has to do with hospitality. I think one reason some of us may not be as hospitable as we would like is hosting people can be a lot of pressure, right? We worry about how our place looks. We worry about if it's too messy. We worry about if the food we prepare will be good enough. But then what's really happening? Instead of hospitality, we're thinking about impressing people. Our focus becomes ourselves, not on simply making our guests feel loved and welcomed. I read about uh, Karen Burton Maines. She's a pastor's wife. She hosts many church activities at her home. And she was obsessed, right, because people always came over. She was obsessed with keeping her place clean. But eventually she got tired of cleaning. I'm sure some of you can relate. And one day, a member of her church visited her, and the house was a mess. Okay, and this is what she writes. She writes, hospitality before pride. I reminded myself dismally. Determined, I welcomed the woman with warmth, invited her into the unseemly rooms, and refused to embarrass her with apologies. I love that part. Not, not embarrassing her with apologies, right? You know, sometimes we do that, right? We're like, oh, I'm sorry, it's a mess, right? But then it just makes things awkward, right? <laughs> She's like, consciously let go of my pride. And the visitor's response amazed her. I used to think you were perfect, she said, but now I think we can be friends. <laughs> so because she didn't need her guest's validation, she simply sought to love her, right? She wasn't putting on a show. She just, you know, even in her messiness, or even with their home in this like broken state. And as a result, what happened? True community was built. These two people became like-hearted. So we should have the same attitude, whether it's hospitality, whether it's you know, doing other things for people. We're just loving people. We're not trying to impress them you know, because we have already received unconditional approval from our God. And finally, going back to my first example about Langdon Gilkey. So if you remember... Uh, the prison camp revealed the heart of man, how selfish man is. So Gilkey's paradigm of humanism, of people acting rational, was shattered. However, there was one man who was clearly different from the others. His name was Eric Liddell, who some of you may know is a former Olympic runner and missionary to China featured in the movie 
chariots of fire. And Gilkey wrote at length about Liddell. Here's what he wrote uh, on the slide about Liddell. He said, it is rare indeed when a person has the good fortune to meet a saint, but he came as close to it as anyone I have ever known. So remember Gilkey's state, he's disillusioned. He thought man could be moral with no help from God, but it's not going so well. But then he meets Liddell, and he sees Liddell. Liddell just took great care, really uh, taking, taking care of the teenagers in the community. He always cooked for them, supervised recreation for them. And Liddell was just known among the other prisoners for his attitude, right, for his humor, his love of life, his sacrificial kindness, his inward peace. You may know the famous quote from Chariots of Fire, right, where Liddell says, when I run, I feel God's pleasure over me. Right? It's knowing how much God loved him, how much God delighted in him, right? how God had saved him simply by grace. That is what is able to fuel him, right? even in this broken place where you know, everyone is just looking out for themselves, right? this place marked by suffering. But he can go right? and just go and love people around him. And I, that's my prayer, that that may be true of you and me, right? that as we continue to know Jesus better, as we, you know, enter into these means of grace and knowing how much more and more, how much God loves us, that we can all join together with this like-heartedness, that we can display the sign of unity for people to see and for people to come to know Jesus themselves. Let's pray together.